All right, man. Welcome to Crow Trip 7 Radio. This is episode 463. Just me and Jason. We're going to be calling UFOs or covering UFOs and the idea of aliens. You know, early on when I was shooting with my scope and I started filming weird things, um, I had a couple ideas in my mind that changed with experience. I thought these are satellites and I thought maybe they're aliens. And as time went on, uh, I began to come back down to reality and I began to realize that everything I had filmed was in our atmosphere. I began to get the perception that from my point of view, matter does not leave our little enclosed area that we call the world, um, nor does it come in. And uh, I got a completely different perception. At some point, um, so many people were trying to assign little gray men to the things that I shot. I came up with the idea of the law of high definition, which ended up being called Crow's law of high definition, which basically goes, if a thing truly exists and it can be filmed in high definition, then it will be filmed in high definition. And while this is not the be all and end all, particularly now, because there is video that could be fabricated, everyone seemed deep fake and other things, you can't tell the difference anymore. So the truth is, is high definition video is really not evidence of anything unless, you know, certainly the source is trustable or you shoot it firsthand. But with all that said, we'll jump in and we'll make a run at so-called UFOs, uh, which is actually a safe term, by the way, um, that I use quite a bit because this basically means something's up there and you can't identify it. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Oh, and a beautiful good morning it is. Ah, it got cold. We lost 20 degrees overnight. But uh, anyhow, let's jump in and do what we do. So let's start off with saying that the majority of the information regarding UFOs and extraterrestrials that is released for public consumption is for social engineering purposes of one sort or another. There have been allegations made that by injecting the notion of aliens from other worlds that have and still are visiting the Earth would make things much easier for the creation of a world government for all of mankind. Think of it as an us-against-them sort of mentality. The alien concept is also used year after year as a money-making scheme for a lot of individuals who release books, podcasts, videos, put on public lectures, etc. A couple things. I still remember vividly when the actor called Ronald Reagan, it feels to me like he might have been in Berlin or Germany or something, gave the speech where something to the effect, uh, if we could, you know, aliens would bring the whole world together, an alien attack or something along these lines. That's a president. In other words, the words leaving his lips are reaching a hell of a lot of minds. And what we have shown over time on this podcast is that anything that reaches a hell of a lot of minds in this day and age is usually lock, stock, and barrel agenda-ridden. But the whole idea of aliens has been used recently to give the impression that humans are tiny little helpless ants, that they can't do things that they clearly did do. Like who moved those monolithic stones? Well, I can use the peanut butter and jelly analogy that I've used so many times. So we're in a place in the world, there's this giant 260 ton stone or something that clearly no human could be genius enough. We don't have any modern cranes that can list it, lift it. Therefore, aliens did it. Well, if I'm in the middle of nowhere and I find a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I can be almost 
perfectly sure, but at least reasonably sure that a human being made that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That logic is no different than the megalithic stone that is here in our world for the simple reason that the only experience we have is common sense experience if we want to be real about it. And who the hell else could have carved it, moved it, done anything with it? There is no evidence to the contrary. So even if the possibility exists that there are other beings, which there clearly are, they're written about all the time. Steiner writes about, everybody's written about them. But for the most part, they are written about in a way that is natural to the course of a human life, like where we go after we die and things like this. That's what makes this so tricky. What's the difference between a so-called spirit and an alien? Well, Hollywood will show you the difference, I guess. There's also the very psyopy feeling that humans suck, regular humans suck like today. We couldn't possibly build buildings and things like that. So giant magic people built magic buildings with magic Star Trek level technology because humans just suck too much and they couldn't possibly do that. Well, what's interesting, too, is the kind of inferiority idea that's being pushed along, which you are insignificant. You're an ant on the face of this thing. You're very limited in what you can do. And is it possible that the reality of what it means to be granted the divine spark of life and be a living human being is that the potential is mind bending? When we begin to think of things like by the time this goes out, we'll have covered David Avocado Wolf. And I had spoken to a uh, an elder that was using tobacco to request rain. And one of the things they do is, is they use their imagination to the puff of tobacco smoke is then imagined to be a rain cloud. Anyone who knows anything about higher meditation realizes the importance of intention and the importance of imagination. The word image is right in it. And so these things seem to be undermined by the fact that there's little gray guys that want to rectally probe you. And, you know, they're, they're multitudes more capable than you will ever be. Seems to me of a way to squash down our perception of ourselves. The next is a quote from John Dewey, professor of philosophy, Columbia University, during a banquet dinner with the Japanese emissary from 1917. Quote, Someone remarked that the best way to unite all the nations on this globe would be an attack from some other planet. In the face of such an alien enemy, people would respond with a sense of their unity of interest and purpose. We have the next thing to that at the present time. Before a common menace, North and South America, the Occident and Orient have done an unheard of thing, a wonderful thing, a thing which, it may well be, future history will point to as the most significant thing in these days of wonderful happenings. They have joined forces amply and intimately in a common cause with one another and with the European nations which were most directly threatened. What a few dreamers hoped might happen in the course of some slow coming century has become an accomplished fact in a few swift years. In spite of geographical distance, unlike speech, diverse religion, and hitherto independent aims, nations from every continent have formed what, for the time being, is nothing less than a world state, an immense cooperative action in behalf of civilization. So, I mean, what you're pointing at here is maybe the footwork or the pre-echoes of their wet dream of one world government using an outside threat 
to try to get there. I mean, is that kind of how you take this, Jason? Yeah, the fact that they were thinking about it in 1917 and discussing it fairly publicly. It's crazy how many generations the queue up to what's going on now has been. And as we record this, and I'm not even kidding, we're starting to hear rumbles about climate change lockdowns. I kid you not. They've already got plans to zone out cities, limit movement. And all I can say is if after everything that's happened, if people are still ready to accept these ideas, whether it's climate change or aliens, to further the agenda of one world government, I mean, we get what we deserve at some point. I mean, that's that's really my point of view. This is it gets to be so beyond ridiculous that right now, in my mind, If I woke up tomorrow and there was an announcement that aliens were attacking the earth, I would laugh. I would literally laugh. They could show me the fancy video. They could show me everything else. And I would treat it no differently than any other news I get. That could only change if I had immediate personal experience to the contrary. And basically at this point, that's how I live my life. But what we notice in all these ideas is they all seem to be backing a common outcome in the future where magically all nations of Earth are combined into one. Ancient aliens. The notion that the Earth had one or more highly technological alien species, assumedly from another world, visiting and influencing humans at the dawn of civilization. Prometheus Entertainment is the company behind the Ancient Aliens program. The main figure of the show, Giorgio Sukolos, is an interesting individual, to say the least. He has been involved in the entertainment business for the majority of his life. Oh, Prometheus, let me count the ways. But to get down to the point, one thing about ancient aliens is they have beautiful cinematography and they go to places in the world where most of us will never get to. And there's a few places where it's quite staggering, the precision at which these stones were cut and everything. But here's the thing. If the peanut butter and jelly sandwich analogy is true, if the law of HD actually applies at some level here, that means that residents of this world, like us, did that. What that means is that they had a higher perception or maybe a closer connection to what's possible in nature. Or if you really want to get there, they had some technology we're completely unaware of. The point is is that logically, commonsensically, if that's a word, which it's not, you have to comprehend that the only acceptable reason is there was a race here that did that, that lived here. Um, There is no evidence to the contrary. And if that is true, it's it's what we were saying before. They're, They're taking the ability of a human mind and they're crunching it down to basically inverted and uncapable when there is evidence to show that it was far from that. Go to a place like Machu Picchu. Have you seen those stones? I don't care who you are. It's amazing. And what's worse is when you try to figure out how it could be pulled off, you really can't get there. And the harder you work at it, you come up with some common sense possible solutions. The point is, is the underlying issue at hand, did human beings do that or did someone from another world do that? I would suggest the peanut butter and jelly sandwich analogy tells you which one of those things is true. Still falling under the category of ancient aliens, we must have a mention of the many mistranslations of Zacharias Sitchin. Sitchin claims to have translated ancient Sumerian texts that informed him that humanity exists as it does today, 
due to the intervention of alien entities. This has been disputed by others with credentials in ancient languages. They have pointed out that he was wrong in numerous places. This didn't stop Sitchin from selling millions of books before he passed away in 2010. Well, right about the time Mr. Sitchin was passing away, I had wasted enough of my life to read 12 of his books before I began to catch on. Part of the logic tells you that really, if Sitchin was correct, then wouldn't we have universities with a line out the back door of people wanting to learn this amazing language so they could get the true history of the earth? And what you actually hear is there's a handful of people who can even deal with it. And then of the few people that can supposedly deal with it, we start seeing all these problems with what Sitchin handed forward. But here's another thing. From the point of view of these books, our creators are what's being referenced. So is God an alien? Right? If this is a creation and there is a creator, is that an alien? So that becomes part of the narrative that's getting skewed up here. In our spiritual endeavors, we consider a creator, most of us. And so in the way he's laying it down, if there was a creator, then that would be an alien. And in his point of view, not very nice, not very good, not very beneficial, basically slaving us out. The War of the Worlds radio drama was an episode of the American radio drama anthology series by the Mercury Theater on the Air. It was performed as a Halloween episode of the series on October 30th, 1938, and aired over the Columbia Broadcasting System Radio Network. Yes, that's what CBS stands for. Directed and narrated by actor and future filmmaker Orson Welles, the episode was an adaptation of H.G. Wells' novel, The War of the Worlds, from 1898. A very well-known globalist, by the way. The first two-thirds of the 60-minute broadcast were presented as a series of simulated news bulletins which suggested to many listeners that an actual alien invasion by Martians was currently occurring. There's so much to this narrative that people don't pick up on. Uh, the perception of what was being said of Mars, the idea that there were canals and all these other things, that are, they're, they're quite concurrent. But as we have shown, H.G. Wells is lock, stock, and barrel insider. And as we have shown, the whole genesis of the sci-fi genre was used to warp minds. To the point where when I was young, if you were a kid involved in comic books, that was a childish, low-minded thing to do. No self-respecting adult would waste their time on such things. We know we've come a long way since there. But I mean, come on. Mercury Theater, there's Mercury the Messenger being quoted. Columbia, there's the god of this place or the stand-in, whatever you want to call the representational occult spirit that has been assigned to our portion of the world. What's interesting about this is it's claimed that hell to pay was caused. All this panic and strife, that's what the reporting you'll get. And after the fact, he's basically slapped on the wrist for fake news, which is what this was. And we're looking at a precursor of a lot of things. We're looking at the first runs at normalization of science fiction to be taken seriously. We're looking at a test across large swaths of people. Apparently, um, it never ends. This is what it is. And I would suggest to you that this was pulled off as a test run to see what would happen. And look what's involved. CBS is involved. A theater is involved. A future famous actor Director is involved, and of course, Mr. H.G. Wells, who has a honored place in a unhonorable profession in our history. 
H.G. Wells was in fact a known globalist. In 1940, his book, The New World Order, was published. In the book, Wells proposed a framework of international functionalism that could guide the world towards achieving world peace. To achieve this goal, Wells asserted that a socialist and scientifically planned world government would need to be formed, quote, to defend human rights. Inversion. Human rights has never been the concern. And let's let's cut to brass tacks here. There are people, some of Steiner's writings, the people who have looked back at Steiner's writings so near to World War I, and they say that the effect of World War I was many times in magnitude what 9-11 was. And I think that that's absolutely correct. But who started that? Did the people start that? Did we have a beef with some other country? Or is this about governing bodies starting these huge world-changing events? And so what he's basically saying, if you want to be logical about it, is the world governors who start all the wars are going to need to combine all the world so they can prevent the wars to defend human rights. Well, as I mentioned earlier, right now they're preparing to try to pull off lockdowns, having 15-minute zones in cities. And I think, um, what's the name of the big university in uh in in England, Jason, um, Oxford. Two of them. Yeah, Oxford. I think it's Oxfordshire, if I remember correctly. Dividing that city down into 15-minute zones and putting up roadblocks because of global warming. I kid you not. And so these are the governing bodies we're talking about that are trying to convince us they need to control everywhere as one to prevent the things that they cause in the first place, if you want to be logical about it. Compounding the issue with War of the Worlds was the fact that the Mercury Theater on the Air ran without commercial breaks, which added to the program's realistic nature. Although there were sensationalist accounts in the press about a supposed panic in response to the broadcast, the precise extent of listener response has been debated. In the days following the adaptation, however, there was widespread outrage and panic by certain listeners who had believed the events described in the program were real. The program's news bulletin format was described as cruelly deceptive by some newspapers and public figures, leading to an outcry against the perpetrators of the broadcast. Despite these complaints, the episode secured Wells' fame as a dramatist. So you get famous for doing a thing that should have been basically illegal, might have even been. I don't know what the laws on the books were. And it's true that we do get varying accounts of how widespread it was, but you can still look up the reaction to a press that wasn't maybe quite whole owned lock, stock and barrel, mostly owned. Uh, as a matter of fact, Citizen Kane, who we're the same man here, uh, is showing you how owned the newspapers were. But let's just cut the brass tacks again. No commercial breaks? Who paid for this? What more do we need to know? Commercials pay for airtime. There were no commercial breaks. Who paid for this? Well, as it turns out, it would seem that the broadcast was actually a psychological warfare experiment conducted by the Princeton Radio Project. The Rockefeller Foundation funded the project in the fall of 1937. An Office of Radio Research was set up with Paul F. Lazarsfeld as director, with Frank Stanton and Hadley Cantrell named as associate directors. Cantrell used a special grant from the General Education Board 
to study the effects of the broadcast. Cantrell published the study as a book titled The Invasion from Mars, A Study in the Psychology of Panic. The book contains a complete script of the broadcast and is one of a series of studies sponsored by the Federal Radio Education Committee. Federal Radio Education. I mean, what? just back up and listen to this paragraph again. This is a long time ago, 1937. This is so Tavistockian in its delivery. As I mean, how can it be that these things were done at that time, that the public outcry wasn't significant enough, that there was pressures put on government? And the answer is simple, because we were already under control. It's just that they were inching their way in. But this is bombastic, to say the least, for this time. And it's clear on the face of it what they were up to, because you and I have hindsight as 2020 vision to see where it was all headed. During World War II, there were a lot of reports of mysterious aerial phenomena by the Allied aircraft pilots in both the European and Pacific theaters. It later turned out that German and Japanese pilots were reporting such things as well. The term Foo Fighter was initially used by the Allies to name the phenomena. The term eventually stuck, and it came to be used for a variety of fast-moving, round-glowing objects that followed their aircraft. Various descriptions used were fiery, glowing red, white, or orange. Some described them as resembling Christmas tree lights and reported that they seemed to toy with the aircraft, making wild turns before simply vanishing. This will have great resemblance to later descriptions of craft making impossible right turns and speeding off at an incredible pace. So if you were at wartime and this was going on, wouldn't really the real focus be there? Don't know what it is. Got way more capability aeronautically than we have. Um, these kinds of ideas. But let's come at this a different way. Foo Fighter, huh? I wish I would have took more time to dig into to how that term actually stuck because I don't know off the top of my head. But it's spelled F-O-O. Where have we seen that? Well, the current king of rock and roll, Dave Grohl, his band was the Foo Fighters. But if you take a close look, F-O-O is 666, and on and on we go. The Kenneth Arnold sighting of June 24, 1947, is the first actual report of flying saucers. This is considered the first of the modern era of UFO reporting. Arnold claims, after seeing flashes of light outside his window while flying his Collair A-2 aircraft over Mineral, Washington, that he witnessed nine shiny thin craft flying together. He compared their movement to saucers skipping on water, and their shape being saucer, disc, pie pan, or half-moon-like. He later said that one craft differed from the saucer look by being a crescent shape. This was the first post-World War II sighting in the United States that garnered nationwide news coverage and is credited as being the first of the modern era of UFO sightings, including numerous reported sightings over the next several weeks. This poppycock, so basically he was shown to be, I don't know, what, CIA or something. He, he was a An intelligence with, operative. Yeah, it, with the usual suspects. But this poppycock is still bringing in dollars today. The people that write books about this complete poppycock. Basically what's going on here is they need a word, they need some programming, so they invent the word flying saucers a couple weeks before they're going to put it to use. 
this has been one of the longest running made up nonsense stories that I'm aware of that brings us into the era of ancient aliens and other things to help skew the American psyche away from common sense, to try to normalize the unhelpful effects of sci-fi on a sober-minded society that would view such things as at best low-minded entertainment. Well, as we see now, these are the biggest things in the world. I mean, I think we're about to see, is the next Avatar about to come out, Jason? Oh, yes. This will be among the most viewed things in all human history. We know it will. The last one was, we know this one will be no different. And this is rooted in the sci-fi genre, which was put together to skew the common sense out of the human psyche and to introduce and mainstream ideas that should not be accepted. Main takeaway, they got their word. Flying saucers, I think it's actually attributed to some reporter who supposedly covered this. But here we have an operative, Kenneth Arnold, doing the deed, and they're making up the programming word they need, which still is used today, uh, a couple weeks before the next event Jason's about to describe. Because now we move on to the Roswell incident, which effectively began after the 4th of July holiday weekend in 1947. A rancher by the name of William Mac Brazel reported to the local sheriff, George Wilcox, that he might have recovered the remains of, quote, one of them flying saucers. Wilcox, according to various accounts, then contacted military authorities at nearby Roswell Army Airfield, where Major Jesse Marcel was assigned to investigate. Marcel and two counterintelligence corps agents, Sheridan Cavett and Louis Rickett, drove out to the ranch where Brazel worked to examine and collect the wreckage. On July 8, 1947, the Public Information Office at Roswell AAF made the startling announcement that they had recovered the remains of a flying disc. Make up your mind, boys. Is it a balloon? Is it a UFO? Is it what is it? I mean, it's ridiculous when you look at how this went, but let's just make a simple point here. When did this happen? Oh, so we're right after Independence Day. Anyone recall a movie about UFOs invading the world called Independence Day? Blockbuster? See what goes on here? These things are inserted into your mind. And then I would imagine most people couldn't tell you that Roswell was near the 4th of July or Independence Day. And yet Hollywood's here to remind our subconscious that this is the case. Um, These are the gifts that never keep giving. And I'll ask a simple question. If you were a rancher and found something on your land, Would you know the difference between a weather balloon and a flying saucer disc-shaped UFO that we've seen so much of from Hollywood? The whole thing is laughable, and yet we have PhDs like Friedman, I don't even know if he's still with us, to this day pushing this nonsense and getting paid for books on basically what amounts to social engineering. By the way, this occurs just off the 33rd parallel. And by the way, go read James Shelby Downard if you want to know the importance of the South, the mystical Southwest of this country. Not only was it important to indigenous peoples for its spiritual auras, for lack of better terms, it has been used over and over by the Masonically driven programmers and founders of this country. Read King Kill 33. You want to know something about the place this happened. By the way, JFK is going to supposedly get whacked a little ways from this using the same mystical geography. By the next day, however, the excitement was over. 
Brigadier General Roger Ramey, who had ordered the wreckage sent to him for examination at Carswell Air Force Base, also known as Fort Worth, held a press conference with Major Marcel present and announced that the flying disc was merely a weather balloon. With Ramey's deflating announcement, the Roswell flying saucer story was effectively dead and would remain so for decades. Then, in 1978, UFO researcher Stanton T. Friedman happened to meet Marcel. Because Marcel dredged up his recovered saucer story, and Friedman thought he had at last found a star witness who could blow open the U.S. government's alleged cover-up of crashed saucers and pickled aliens, and the Roswell myth began anew, with Friedman as its most outspoken figurehead. Uh, Mr. Friedman, if I'm not mistaken, he was a nuclear physicist or something like that. So he was also pushing, there's a magic red button that can destroy the creation nuclear nonsense. But I'll just make a, a a single statement about this. Do you ever notice in comic books how all the comic characters' first name and last name starts with the same letter? Kind of a mind hook, rolls off the tongue, makes really good. Well, listen to the characters in this comic. General Roger Ramey, Major Marcel. They're using the same tricks that they use in DC and Marvel Comics to name their characters for whatever Tavistockian thing was discovered about using names in that way, making them catchy, uh, mind hooky, more memorable. Same thing's going on here. And Mr. Friedman, you should be ashamed of yourself, but I guess you're not here to have that shame anymore. Stanton T. Friedman claims to have been a nuclear physicist for 14 years, before leaving the profession in 1970 to pursue the scientific investigation of UFOs. Friedman would go on to give numerous lectures, be on plenty of chat shows, contribute to multiple books, and be a very public voice for the reality of what he liked to call flying saucers. Stanton T. Friedman would normally end every lecture with an appeal for world government, which he justified by asking, who speaks for planet Earth? Argentina? Huh. Huh. <laughs> I didn't catch that. That's that's supposedly home of the secret Nazis after World War II, isn't it? Um, but yeah. he, he, here's the thing. God, it never ends. Here's the thing. Which job do you suppose pays you better? Nuclear physicist or UFO investigator in the 1970s? Well, I got news for you. Turns out UFO investigator pays better for Mr. Friedman. But there it is. One world government, Argentina. I mean, come on. We, we see who you're working for here, buddy. Uh, maybe wherever you've gone now that you're not here anymore, you're being forced to look at these shameful actions that uh, you put so much energy in to delude human minds. Project Blue Book was the code name for the systematic study of unidentified flying objects by the United States Air Force from March 1952 until its official termination on December 17, 1969. The project that was headquartered at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio was initially directed by Captain Edward J. Ruppelt and followed projects of a similar nature, such as Project Sign, established in 1947, and Project Grudge in 1948. Project Blue Book had two stated goals, to determine if UFOs were a threat to national security and to scientifically analyze UFO-related data. So, if I'm not mistaken, this was one of the places that supposedly got 
stored the flying disc or something like this. So what are you guys about here? Either you have a disc or you don't be pretty clear if you did what what's what, you know, is it beyond what you can comprehend? What is it? But look, even the naming in this is doing the same comic book routine, blue book, BB, on and on we go. Astronomer Dr. J. Allen Hynek was the scientific consultant for Project Blue Book. He had also been with the previous projects, Sign and Grudge. He worked for the project up to its termination and initially created the categorizations, which were later extended, known as Close Encounters. He was a pronounced skeptic when he first started his investigations, but said that his feelings had changed to a more wavering skepticism during the research. And after encountering a minority of UFO reports, he thought were unexplainable. But here's a good example of how the Tavistockian programming works. Yes, there's a threat. Well, no, the chief guy in charge says probably not what we thought. Up and down, never finding your balance. But now let me demonstrate to you how the subconscious mind effing works. So Project Sign, does anyone remember the Mel Gibson movie Signs? Close Encounters, uh, that was later extension of the project. Does everyone remember a movie called Close Encounters? You see how this works? It's playing on your subconscious, is what it is. Hi, Nick actually did a real-world appearance at the end of the film, by the way. Oh, did he? I didn't know that at all. So there you go. Yeah, watch the end scene. He comes forward through the crowd, and that's the real guy. I had no idea that was true. Uh, I don't think I've seen that movie since, what, the 70s or whenever it came out? I don't think I had either. So before I gave this uh, presentation a few months ago, I rewatched it. So do you see how important the power that Hollywood has? So people name things for a reason. Almost certainly there's voodoo and hocus pocus put onto the projects and the names to subconsciously or mentally affect the masses. And these secret little words are probably being used all over the place all the time. It just makes it easier to pick them out when Hollywood verbatim echoes. Is since we're talking about aliens, the movies about aliens, they're verbatim. They're, they're doing exactly what James Shelby Downard said. They're using animal magnetism with the geography, with the names, and it, it's just all one big mind screw. But here is the thing. From another sci-fi movie, let's call what they're doing the force. As we were told in 1977, the force has a very powerful effect on the weak-minded. There it is. Lock, stock, and barrel. Don't be weak-minded. It's your choice for most of us whether or not you will be weak-minded. Uh, a person who is not weak-minded will be impervious to this nonsense. The Brookings Institution is a policy think tank in Washington, D.C. It was founded in 1916 as the Institute for Government Research. The institution has produced thousands of reports in its lifetime, but the report that is so often misrepresented in the UFO community is the 1960 paper Proposed Studies on the Implications of Peaceful Space Activities for Human Affairs. In the most interesting section of the report, the authors contemplated the possibility that contact might be made with extraterrestrial intelligence. They warned that this might not be an unmitigated cause for celebration. Quote, anthropological files contain many examples of societies sure of their place in the universe, which have disintegrated when they have had to associate with previously unfamiliar societies espousing different ideas 
and different life ways. Others that survived such an experience usually did so by paying the price of changes in values and attitudes and behavior. So fear, right? They're going to introduce the fear based on a history. And I would suggest to you, these guys, you didn't quite get it right. That's every culture that has ever been, as far as we know. We're told that some of the longest are Rome and other places. But the point I would make is even in the language where there are proposed studies for implications of peaceful space activities, that implies by the very way it is said that we need to change it from what it currently is, which would be the opposite of peaceful to this. But here's the kicking in the cojones. I have been told that when Eisenhower gave his speech about, you guys are in trouble, there's a thing called the military industrial complex, that one of the main entities he was referring to was the Brookings Institute, which, by the way, is front and center in the movie 2001, just to make the point. And finishing out with the Brookings Institute quote, it has been speculated that of all groups, scientists and engineers might be the most devastated by the discovery of relatively superior creatures, since these professions are most clearly associated with the mastery of nature, rather than with the understanding and expression of man. Advanced understanding of nature might vitiate all our theories at the very least, if not also require a culture and perhaps a brain inaccessible to earth scientists. However, Brookings looked on the bright side as well. The knowledge that life existed in other parts of the universe might lead to a greater unity of men on earth, based on the oneness of man or on the age-old assumption that any stranger is threatening. Much would depend on what, if anything, was communicated between man and the other beings. All right, Brookings, keep running with your Tavistockian baton, the unity of man based on oneness, their wet dream of one world governance. But let's take a close look at a couple of things they're saying. Scientists, since these professions are most clearly associated with the mastery of nature, well, that's exactly what it is, the hacking and the control of nature, not the comprehension of it. And so it's like every little participle that they're putting in, in my mind, is running, sprinting away from common sense. And this is the subjugation of what it means to be a human being in our era. It's not just coming at us from Hollywood and the television. It's coming at us from everywhere. Our textbooks, our schools. I was laughing the other night talking with Fortune. He, he referred to school as skewel because it is skewing you. And I had to laugh because he's not wrong. And why is he not wrong? Because of ideas like this. Mastery of nature. Well, is this a creation? Did a creator create it? Is what we should be endeavoring to do to master it? Or should we be trying to comprehend it and work within our place of it, with it, alongside it? In the old days, alchemy had a form of science that tried to do that, never exceeding the bounds of nature. These statements are brash. Screw nature, screw the creation. We're going to hack it if we can. We'll do anything we can. There are no limits. There are no moral roadblocks. We will go every inch required to be masters. And his closing statement with unity based on oneness, which is just code language for basically a one world order of some sort. 
I would urge people to go back and listen to Eisenhower's speech, the short excerpt. I have it on very good authority from a person who I accept knows what they're talking about, that the Brookings Institute is front and center in the warning of the military industrial complex. For those of you who know anything about cinema and the recent historical past, you will comprehend that the making of that movie is lock, stock, and barrel connected to the faking of the moon landing. These things never end. And so I would ask a simple question. If we know certainly, demonstrably, that the moon landing was a farce, why would we ever listen to a single word from any of these institutions that were involved in that farce? And what does that farce do? It sets a societal, a worldwide societal mindset based in error. You do not know where you exist. Therefore, if you believe you exist somewhere you do not, every single decision for the entirety of your life will be based on a foundational error. And that's from simple computer science. Bad info in, bad info out. The Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, is a U.S.-based nonprofit organization composed of civilian volunteers who study reported UFO sightings. It is one of the oldest and largest organizations of its kind, claiming more than 4,000 members worldwide, with chapters and representatives in more than 43 countries and all 50 states. MUFON Incorporated was originally established as the Midwest UFO Network on May 31, 1969, in Quincy, Illinois. Most of MUFON's early members were associated with the Skylook newsletter of Stover, Missouri, and the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, formerly of Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. MUFON was renamed the Mutual UFO Network in 1973 because of its expansion to other states and countries. So I have a bit of a history with MUFON uh, that I haven't really talked about. When I had amassed quite a bit of footage, I went to a local MUFON meeting and I told them I had probably some of the most interesting footage they'd ever seen and they could hardly be bothered, the guy running the place. They didn't have the right equipment to run it. We needed to, I forget what it was. We needed a, because the digital files I had, it was kind of antiquated in there, but an old gentleman, nice man, very old, comes up to me and whispers in my ear, you know, there's plants in here. Be careful what you do. And I thought that's a weird thing to tell me. So at the next meeting, I brought the things I needed to project it on the screen and I quickly realized who the plant was who badmouthed the clips all the way through and then hounded me at the end to get copies of them, at which time I showed him my middle finger. He had a big presence online. I don't remember his name because it was such kind of a carnival clown show. I just dismissed it and walked away. Um, But as fate would have it, I would later have to deal with MUFON. Since the Huffington Post and other places that call themselves news online have carte blanche to steal any clip they want because of the word news, uh, they stole my stuff all the time. And it got to the point where their little UFO guy was running my stuff regularly. And then one day he ran a thing and it was a bridge too far. I'd had enough. He ran some of my footage and he got an FBI expert. I'm not even kidding. You can still look this up. What the hell an FBI expert knows about someone filming objects through a scope knows. I have no idea, but he got the head of MUFON. And what these two jokers did was said this character Crow, clearly an idiot, doesn't understand his equipment, 
what's in this clip we stole from him without his permission is a satellite in half geosynchronous orbit. And that was it. I'd had it. I contacted him and I said, look, pal, I want you to run a rebuttal clip because I've had it with you guys. And he refused. I said, okay, you asked for it. I had quite a following by that time. So I did two things. I contacted OPT, which is no longer what it once was because of COVID. The storefront is now closed, but they had among the smartest telescopic experts you could ever pray for. There was one guy in there that was genius beyond imagination, and he was an optical engineer expert. We took the chips from my cameras. We took the exact scopes. The difference between shooting a still image and a video image, because there are resolution differences, and we calculated exactly what one pixel would be worth at 11,000 miles away from my scope. While I was doing that, I went on my YouTube channel and I said, this joker who's bad mouthing me won't run a rebuttal clip. All you people following me start sending him email, which they did by the hundreds, maybe by the thousands. At that time, I had time to come home, calculate all the values. And I realized this thing that they were telling me they knew certainly was a satellite in half geosynchronous orbit at 11,000 miles. Geosync, according to them, is 22,000 miles. Uh, if it was what they said it was, the optical expert assured me it would have been hundreds and hundreds of feet long. Well, I don't know of any satellite that's hundreds and hundreds of feet long. And that is when I began to realize that everything I had shot was much closer than we had ever imagined, all of it falling within our atmosphere. Meanwhile, all my followers are pinging this dude saying, run the rebuttal, which he does. He hides it at the end of his article. You can still go find it, by the way. As a matter of fact, I have, I, I have it somewhere on my YouTube channel. And that is what MUFON is about. In other words, I'm a dude in my backyard shooting things that clearly classify as UFO, and they're doing everything they can to defame it and make the people filming appear ridiculous. But there's the big old story, Jason. So you have what they're looking for and have been looking for for decades. You have it in quantity, and no one's interested. How oh, very interesting. Yeah, not only that, when I showed up at the MUFON meeting, they had, and he was famous. The guy was famous in, in the Prometheus product, TV production places. I later saw him on some of those hokey dokey, you know, aliens run the world shows. Uh, and he literally talked smack the whole time I was trying to show my clips in there. Um, and, and everyone was, the people there that were in, honestly interested because all they ever did was talk and share books in there before I had arrived. Um, they were embarrassed because of the scene he was making. And by the end of it, I put my foot down and I let him know you're, you're a jackass, dude. I brought, you guys are here supposedly to be interested in what's called UFOs. I'm showing you probably the best you've ever seen. And all you're doing is exactly what Huffington Post did, knowing not a damn thing about how I shot it or anything else. Um, and I was warned that you were here by the very director knows who you are and why you're here. And by the way, he was lock, stock and barrel in bed with the Prometheus alien gang. And just to complete the story, Prometheus Productions contacted me and wanted first time they contacted me. They wanted me to come up to Hollywood and do a screen test for my own UFO show. Not kidding. I took one look at the not the main contract, the will come screen test you contract. And I laughed myself out of my chair and I told them, you will never get a real researcher to sign this. At which point they told me, you'd be surprised who would sign this. 
And I said, no, I won't, because I would never sign anything like this offensive document. They later came back once or twice. I don't remember anymore trying to get my footage. But here's what's interesting about that. Of all the footage I shot that you guys have all seen, what would be what would you be most interested in? Have to be the lunar wave or maybe the vortex, something like that's not what they wanted. And when I asked them why it wasn't the lunar wave, they said they had no interest and they wanted to license it. And I read the paperwork on that as well. And that was sneaky and underhanded. They wanted to pay me something like 45 or I don't know, not very much money a second. And then I realized as I read carefully what they had written, that what they do is they pay you a few shekels for the footage and then they replay it and replay it and replay it. And and I flipped them off again and told them, don't call me anymore. Anyhow, there's all that. And for the last point for hour one, the Betty and Barney Hill abduction incident is the introduction of the Zeta Reticuli meme and is the first widely publicized report of a UFO abduction. They were an American couple who claimed to be abducted from a rural part of New Hampshire from September 19th to 20th, 1961. This incident introduces a lot of the concepts that will be repeated later, such as memory blockages, medical examinations, missing time, and seeing unusual things aboard the supposed spacecraft. Betty would draw a star map of what she says she saw while on board the craft. This is how at least certain aliens are supposed to come from the double star system of Zeta Reticuli. I mean, how freaking gullible are we? You know what? Anyone listening to this, go grab a star map and then show it to someone for as long as they want to look at it. And then come back a week later and ask them to draw the star map for one thing. Zeta Reticuli, my dying, you know what? September. Just wake me up when September ends. Anyone out there listening, please. When September ends, wake me up. But let's let's apply the comic book. I should make a law of naming for comic books. Betty and Barney, B&B. Those are both twos, and they start with the equivalent of an 11 in the occult world that I have recognized in these people. And they were biracial. Do you know what it meant to be biracial in 1961 in this country? And I know. Because while I wasn't here in 61, I was here shortly after that. And I remember what it was like to be biracial and how that was viewed. So it's almost like they're putting a deflector in there. You see what I'm saying? So the main thing is these guys got abducted. But here's this other thing you can commiserate and be bigoted about and hate or love or defend or attack. It's always the same game. Always the same game. But the simple, provable logic flaw that they could come up with a place called Rosetta Reticuli is who in the hell could sit down a week or even a day later and put stars at the right distance and the right number and the right magnitude. And then who could possibly match that up with all the many thousands or hundreds of thousands of stars and come up with the fact that these are clearly from Zeta Reticuli. And by the way, this one's stuck. I'm imagining since I haven't looked it up that Zeta and Reticuli probably have some occult significance off the top of my mind now, all I can think of is a reticulated python. And while I know what that means, I, I guess I'm not really working out why that was chosen. But this is all science fiction, man. It's all designed to blow your mind. And if you're not weak-minded, then your mind will never be blown to make the pun. But there it is, Jason. Anything you want to add for the ending of the first hour of 463? 
Well, speaking of science fiction, when we get back in hour two, we'll be showing what Hollywood has been doing with science fiction with some really good examples of how they push these narratives out into the mainstream. And there they stay, because people are still to this day quite obsessed with this stuff and have been for decades. <laughs> to say the least, it's all designed to blow your mind, but your mind will never be blown. Just get your picture on the cover of the Rolling Stone, yo. There it is, hour one of episode 463. We're going to get together, have a little break here, come back for hour two. Uh, it's a good one. Uh, for those of you that don't know, this is all based on a presentation Jason did at Flattoberfest, if uh, you re- recognize some of it. Anyhow, hour one is free to everybody at pro777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full two-hour, two-hour-plus show. Of course, all members get free access to all my television telescope in the film called shoot the moon two hour film with something like 10 awards now there it is with that we're going to regroup get ready for hour two and i'd like to wish you all a happy healthy and higher-minded new era cheers
belief is the enemy of knowing. Come.